This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on Trek FM. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the resplendent Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you this week? I am doing great just being a reading fool. I'm just constantly <laughs> reading Star Trek books. It's crazy, but I love it. I mean, I don't think I'll ever get tired of it, which is why I'm on well, the show, I think. That's really good news because I don't think we'll ever run out of Star Trek books. Um, later on in the feature, we're actually going to be joined by Justin Ozer, who has made it his mission in life to read every single Star Trek novel, which I mean is kind of a mission I have in my life, not really an active one, but, you know, would be a really cool achievement un unlocked. But there are tons of Star Trek novels, and I would kind of be okay if we never, ever ran out of them, personally. I know, I agree. Well, and my goal when I started reading Star Trek novels in, like, 1990 was to read every novel, and that list was a lot shorter then. I think there was, I don't know, <laughs> 60. This is when the numbered series, there was, like, 60 TOS, and there was, like, only 12 TNG at the time, and that was, like, it. And I was like, oh, I'm going to read them all. But that was at a time then, too, all of a sudden there was, like, two novels every month, you know, because... You know, then you have Deep Space Nine that premiered and, there, and it was just like and then I, my life, you know, sometimes life gets busy and I just didn't keep up. And now it's like there's hundreds of these and there's just no way I'm going to get them all read. But what's really cool mm -hmm. is the feature today, uh, that book uh, I read while Matt Rushing was visiting uh, me over the weekend and uh, it was pretty cool that we were both reading the book at the same time we could comment to each other about things so that that was pretty fun that's really neat very cool and to add to this ever lengthening line of Star Trek novels with no end in sight fingers crossed uh, we actually have some information on one of the new novels coming out uh, at the end of November this year and that is the briefly released cover for Titan, Fortune of War. Now, I say briefly because this cover came out 
uh, just the other day, there was a feature on StarTrek.com, but that feature has since disappeared. And I think that's because, and I hate to say this, but they have the wrong ship on the cover. This is not the Titan. What's going on here? <laughs> well, I didn't even think anything was wrong with it. I just, I mean, I knew it wasn't the Titan, but I just figured it must be a ship that's going to be featured as a prominent mm -hmm. ship within this Titan novel, but I guess not. Yeah, that's kind of what I was was thinking initially, but according to David Mack's comments on Facebook, apparently they're, uh, they are going to fix it, and it's going to be fixed before it goes to the printers. So it turns out that this was actually a mistake. Uh, it was supposed to be the Titan on the cover and not this Akira-class ship, which I'm actually kind of sad about because it's a gorgeous cover. I really like the Akira, and... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad this wasn't just a support chip that was going to be in this novel or something. I know. I, I really like the cover, too. Uh, and now, of course, as of this recording, this is, you know, I guess they're going to make changes to this cover. But maybe by the time people hear this episode, the new one's out already. So just if you see a cover the, of Star Trek Titan and you see the Titan, then you know you've got the right cover. If you see a different ship, then you know you, <laughs> you're seeing the wrong cover cover right absolutely well they also did um release the back cover blurb for this one and this one sounds really interesting if you remember we had david mack on uh one of the times he was on earlier he talked a little bit about this saying that it had some tie to tng season three and here we are we we know what that is now so here's the back cover blurb Death slumbers in the ashes of silent planets, waiting to be awakened and unleashed. Twenty years have passed since the inter interstellar scourge known as the Husnock were exterminated without warning by a being with godlike abilities. Left behind, intact but abandoned, their desolate worlds and derelict ships brim with destructive potential. Now a discovery by Federation Cultural Research Team has drawn the attention of several ruthless factions— from black market smugglers to alien military forces, it seems every belligerent power in the quadrant hopes to capture the Husnock's lethal technology. All that stands between the galaxy and those who have come to plunder the cruelest secrets of the Husnock are Admiral William Riker, Captain Christine Vale, and the crew of the Starship Titan. So pretty cool, uh, taking off from the TNG Season 3 episode, The Survivors, uh, with uh, the Dowd, the Kevin Uxbridge who destroyed all of the Husnock and we get kind of a follow-up to that. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's coming out November 28th and, uh, I think we're getting two books that date. We are. Yeah. So with all of the weird changes in the book schedule that have happened over the last year, mostly with, as, as far as I know, two big things have, have, affected that and that's the moving date of uh star trek discovery which means that david mack's discovery novel has been moved a couple of times in the schedule uh and also kirsten byer's book architects of infinity has been moved around a little bit and that's kind of affected the schedule so we have two books coming out at the end of september uh a Deep Space Nine book and the Discovery book. And then also at the end of November, we get this Titan novel, Fortune of War. And I believe it's the English translation of the Prometheus novel, Fire with Fire, that's coming out that day as yeah, well. Yeah, the novel that originally came out in Germany, in German, of course. Mm -hmm. 
Right. But we're not going to so, get the German version unless you want to. <laughs> you can get the German version now. But yeah, the English version's coming out in November. Yeah, exactly. So, man, you know, we, we've had a couple months that there's no Star Trek novel, but we're getting it made up for at the end of the year here. We're going to get lots of Star Trek novels at once. So, you know, Bruce and I are going to be hurriedly reading them into the wee hours just for you. <laughs> yes, only for you, not for us. <laughs> awesome well that's all that we have really for the news this week uh so what do you say we jump right into the feature and welcome our special guest i'm ready to go on this enterprise well today we're talking about a new book release which is something we haven't had in a little while so it's exciting we finally get the chance to sit around and talk about a new Star Trek novel, and this week it's Star Trek Enterprise, Rise of the Federation, Patterns of Interference by Christopher L. Bennett. Now, when this guy writes a book, it's like the titles get longer and longer every time, am I right? There's just colons everywhere, and, and man, this I think this might set a record for longest title. Although, Department of Temporal Investigations probably has that title still. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely a long title. Lots of colons. It's like a colonoscopy of titles. Does that, <laughs> that, that, uh, that was my little joke. I'm done. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you can tip me at the bar. He's here all week. Try the veal. It's great. Well, joining us also today to talk about Patterns of Interference is special guest Justin Ozer. Justin, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm really excited because Literary Treks was the first Trek FM podcast that I discovered about a year and a half ago. So it's just really exciting to actually be here talking about a book. Well, I'm glad we were able to rope you in and, and <laughs> really pull your teeth to try to join us for the show. Yeah, I think I probably have asked Bruce about 20 times to be on Literary Treks and finally a success. So there you go, everyone. If you want to be on Literary Treks, you have to ask at least 20 times. <laughs> yep. Make sure to tweet at, well, uh, tweet at Bruce. Tweet at Bruce. He'll, he'll get you on the show. Don't tweet at me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's awesome to have you on for sure. You know, one of our um, associate producers, of course, and finally sharing the airwaves with us here on Literary Treks. Airwaves. Am I, I, I think I might be 60 or something. I'm trying to sound a little younger today. But You're like, not a, a, a associate producer still, are you? I am still an associate producer of Earl Grey, as well as a host, co-host of Earl Grey. Awesome. Well, we thank you for your support <laughs> of the network. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're on Earl Grey? Is that you I hear on? Because you're recent. I know. I, I'm just kidding around. But yeah, you recently starred on Earl Grey. I did. About a month ago, I, I joined Earl Grey with Amy Nelson and uh, Richard Marquez because Lee Hutchison had some things going on, needed to, to step back. But yeah, we've been doing the show for about a month, been having a good time talking Next Generation uh, every week. Well, it's great to have a Next Generation expert on here to talk about Enterprise. Well, I love Enterprise too, so <laughs> don't worry, it won't lose me. But Okay, good. But yeah, the interesting thing is some Next Generation stuff that I was thinking about while reading this book. I was going to say, there are some links that we will definitely get to in our discussion, kind of uh, surprising, well, very overt Next Generation references almost, but we'll, we'll get there for sure. Uh, so yeah, like I said, we're, we're going back to the Rise of the Federation series. I think this is Christopher Bennett's fifth book in this series. Um, first of all, just to start out with, um, Justin, you specifically, what do you think of the Rise of the Federation series? Have you read all of the, all of the books to this point? 
And, you know, how are you enjoying it? Yeah, I've, I, I've read all of the Rise of the Federation books. I've actually read all of the, the relaunch books, the Romulan War one, ones and the ones before that, including The Last Full Measure, which is kind of only a partial relaunch book. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I've, I've read those. Um, I've really enjoyed The Rise of the Federation. Um, I mean, I think each of them is very different in their own thing. And probably my favorites are A Choice of Futures and Uncertain Logic. But they're, they're all really great getting this insight into, uh, you know, a, a part of the Federation's history that we don't really know very much about the early years. In this book, it's 2165 and 66, so within the first five years of the Federation. And in going through it in, in these five books, it's been great, all the insights, and Christopher L. Bennett just puts in so much that's going on, and usually there's a lot of intricate plots. I felt like this one, it was... It was, uh, you know, fewer different plot lines. For some of the books, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, but it was definitely focused on a, a couple of them. But I've enjoyed, you know, all the Rise of the Federation books a lot. Excellent. Well, yeah, like I say, we've got an interesting story in this one. And that's, to me, always been a really untapped resource in storytelling is these early days of the Federation. And I, I've got to say, I'm really enjoying Christopher Bennett's tackling of these few years here. So, you know, we've got a lot of continuation of some stories that have been set up in previous books, some new things going on with a lot of these antagonists that we've seen. And first of all, the first thing I wanted to talk about is kind of the big baddie of the book, the Saurian dictator, Maltuvis, which this is an interesting character to me. It was a throwaway line in the episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of?, where Kirk kind of rattles off a list of dictators from history, and Maltuvis is one of them. And there's been some different comics and stuff that have have taken that character and done different things, but I like Christopher L. Bennett's taking that character, making him a Saurian, and clearly, even after this book, I think there's still going to be more going forward with this character, but in this book, we really see his rise to power you know he gained power in the previous book but now he's really kind of solidifying and cementing that power i was kind of wondering what you guys thought of this character and how he's depicted in this book well my first impression was the saurians i mean it reminded me a little bit of north korea when i first started reading it Mm. and then it shifted a little maybe just briefly to russia and then to the united states and it stuck in the united states for a while like i i felt like it was his commentary on really any prominent world leader that is narcissistic or his opinion may be they are narcissistic and um so I just, I felt there were, and not even just on this subject, but I felt like there was a lot of subjects where Christopher Bennett was making a lot of his opinions known about the political climate of our country in the United States and other countries in the world, which of course, there's always things like that going on throughout world history. But I really felt like he was using the opportunity now to really dive into that a little deeper than he has in previous books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely made the the same connection, Bruce. I I felt like, you know, in, in some of the things he was he was talking about, you know, specifically about dictatorships, but in other places, um, you know, even though 
what Maltuvis is doing and his methods are more extreme, he was definitely making some commentary on on current U.S. politics. That definitely kind of came up in in my head, you know, at least a few times during the course of this book. Yeah, there's definitely um, some ties there for sure. I think a lot of what we're seeing in Maltuvis and his rise to power is you know, a very familiar story that's played out a lot of times throughout history. I mean, you know, Hitler, for example, I mean, that initial uh, consolidation of power, marginalization and le- delegitimization of the press and that sort of thing, uh, really, it, it's it's a story that's been told over and over and over again. And North Korea, I think, Bruce, is a perfect example, you know, generation after generation of this populace that's shielded from outside influence, outside information, and told only, you know, what the leader wants them to know, and basically told what to believe and how to believe it. You know, famously, the the Nazi regime repeating the big lie enough times before, until it becomes a truth, you know. And another parallel that I noticed that I thought was really interesting was uh, Syria, to me. For example, later on, we get the Federation deciding to intervene in a limited way in Saurian politics and what's going on there, not by sending troops or something like that, but advisors to help the resistance. That really reminded me a lot of the kind of small-scale interventions in Syria with advisors being sent to help the rebels there kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I hadn't thought of, of Syria actually when they talked about sending in advisors. I mean, I think that may be something that typically happens as a prelude to greater intervention, but I actually thought first about about Vietnam because I mm. think, you know, uh, fairly famously there were military advisors that were sent in a little bit in the, you know, late 50s and early 60s and then it was kind of slowly escalated to more of like a full military uh, presence, but you know, the 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 intervention that they're they're talking about you know, it very much makes you think of our, our own world. And if you think of instead of intervening in another planet, intervening in another country, and there are definitely those kinds of debates, whether it makes sense to intervene in certain situations or not. Is it case by case? Should we never do that? Should we always in certain situations? So I found that that uh, really interesting considering, you know, current debates and debates that have happened for as long as, you know, countries have been able to to be more connected in the world. Well, I've been uh, living a lot of Star Wars when I was reading this book because I was, the Star Wars people put me on panels at Dragon Con. So I was reading this book throughout Dragon Con. So constantly talking about Star Wars over that weekend and reading this book at the same time, I started to see the parallels between the the two franchises because, uh, so Maltivis remind me of, uh, you know, the emperor in Star Wars and the suppression that they're doing to other worlds and, and how they're playing them. And there's all these rebels that are coming and all these different factions that are trying to take down the leader. And there's distortion and information and news of what's really going on in the galaxy and who's on what side and who believes in, in the empire and who doesn't. So there was a lot of, a lot of this book that I thought, you know, you can just change a lot of these names and say, Hey, this is star Wars, you know, and this is the emperor and this is Darth Vader and these are the rebels and so on and so forth. So that was kind of really weird when you're, talking Star Wars all weekend at a Dragon Con and then come to this book and I had to remind myself, oh wait, I'm reading Star Trek right now, but it's almost felt like Star Wars. 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of those are <clears throat> can be pretty universal themes as well. You know, uh, freedom and suppression, and you know, if if people want to to resist having a rebellion or resistance, and yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's something that's been um, you know an an important topic for for a long time across a lot of different societies. And it's something that is going to have resonance. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people think of something like the rise of the Nazis and Hitler in the thirties as something that could, you know, never happen again kind of thing. But, you know, in this book, we've got a modern society that's on the cusp of being a spacefaring, you know, interstellar race. And all it takes is the right circumstances and the right person to capitalize on that. And, you know, it can very easily happen. And I think, you know, that's a good message to be sending because, you know, what does Picard say in the drumhead? Constant vigilance is what is needed to protect against people like that. Speaking of TNG, Earl Grey, there we go. It's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in fact, when I opened this book, there were two quotes from Picard at the very beginning, and I was like, am I reading the right book? Or is this a 24th century book? Because I, I, I don't know if in like the other um, Enterprise books that there's been something at the very beginning that hasn't... Because usually for a lot of these books, there's a historian's note where it's like, this takes place between this time and this time. It was more like, here's a Picard quote, here's the beginning of the book. And I was kind of jarred by that. I was like, whoa, okay. So wait, <laughs> you you're, you pick up an Enterprise book, you start reading Picard. Wait, is this the next generation? Or is this, these are the voyages? that last episode of enterprise <laughs> oh so you're saying this novel might be inside a holodeck program <laughs> <laughs> it could be and then Riker and troy show up <laughs> well i have that on my mind because i just watched it this morning <laughs> <laughs> well at least if not that it almost does feel like an historical accounting of you know maybe something somebody would study as to where the prime directive came from and i i think those picard's quote those Picard quotes really started off on the right note. You know, it gets the reader thinking about these things. And that's kind of what this book becomes is kind of the ultimate prime directive debate. Like it was right there at the beginning, you know? So what is the Federation's role in not just pre-warp civilizations? Because a lot of people think the prime directive applies only to pre-warp civilizations, but there are different facets to it, right? So pre-warp civilizations don't, you know, don't contact them. That's, that's a given according to the prime directive, but even civilizations that have warp drive, it's up to them to determine their course. And if they don't want the Federation to be there, the Federation will say, okay, we won't be there. The prime directive says we have to honor your wishes. And it's kind of interesting to see on this basic level, people in a room sitting around debating this at the very beginning. Yeah, for for me, that was one of the most fascinating aspects of of the book. This kind of argument that was going on at different parts throughout the book, all the way um, toward the end, uh, just to to see this, you know, not in in a period of time where it's already been settled. This is Starfleet Order Number One, and this is what we do. But but talking about different ways of doing it and different ways of 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 interpreting it was 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 very very. Um, interesting for me and to see people on on different sides of it um, and and also just to to reflect on those because you know I, th I thought that 
I had a good idea of of the prime directive and you know why it's it's a good thing generally, but there were some really good arguments that were made here for something a little more nuanced or something a little different that really got me to think about it in a way I hadn't before. I remember Shran was the opposite end of the argument uh, from Archer. Archer's pushing non-interference and Shran is like, no, that's just, you know, holding us back and we can help other races, which is kind of interesting for me because when I think of Shran, I think of him being more of the type that would say, well, let them fend for themselves. Let them do, you know, we have to take care of ourselves first. But instead, he seemed to have more compassion for other races than Archer did. And I'm not saying that Archer doesn't have compassion, but I think if anything, maybe Archer has a better understanding that the, that getting involved, that the United Federation of planets getting involved with these other planets before they're ready really could do more harm than good. Where Shran's thinking, well, maybe, but you have to take a chance and you could do more good than maybe harm. So there's two sides of the coins between the two. Uh, so I liked how pitting these two characters against each other, while at the same time showing that they really have a tight bond as friends. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, it's also very interesting to see Archer and Soval on the same side of an argument. Yes. <laughs> which was very odd. Yeah. these All these years later, he's he's come around to the Vulcan point of view of non-interference. It's It's quite interesting to see. Which might be the only reason trans against it too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, maybe, but but like in in the course of these arguments, I mean, Tran was actually making some good arguments. At one point, he says, "Okay, let's say we have this non-interference directive, and we explain why this has happened." You know, maybe your um, you know first generation of of officers will understand that, but over time, and he says, the next generation of of officers, giving a little wink there. Uh, would would not understand, you know, all those those years later. And and then Archer says, you know, no one would be as twisted as to think it would make sense to let a whole species die in order to avoid harming them. Um, and and of course, you think of sometimes in the next generation when Picard was willing to do exactly that. So um, it, just just seeing like those different points of view, it, it made me a little more uncertain where I would stand on this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting that they they threw in that Archer saying, oh, come on, Tran, no one would ever take it to that extreme, you know, like, but if it's not spelled out in the rules that way, it's very clear that someone would take it to that extreme. And like you say, in the next generation, we get examples of that happening, you know, Picard saying in the season seven episode Homeward that, you know, the Baralans their fate is for their world to be destroyed and them to all die and they can't interfere because of the prime directive. Well, clearly even the people who are framing the prime directive and who are fully behind it, that wasn't their intention, which I actually found really interesting and kind of a bit of a surprise. Yeah, definitely. Because I I think what the idea that we're getting here is that they, there's a certain spirit behind it, like we're going to try not to interfere because we don't want to cause more harm than good. But if there's a situation where it's clear that we'll do more good, like the whole species will get wiped out, like why would you let the whole species get wiped out? 
if you could help them out? How could it do them more harm to try to, to help their species survive than to watch them all die? So that was really fascinating because I hadn't thought about that kind of argument going on. And it, it makes sense like, oh, maybe we should make an exception if they're all going to die, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's funny that Archer seems to think that that goes without saying. And he's like, oh, everybody 200 years from now will understand that, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, and it, it's uh, to me what what really the takeaway from that was, was, you know, this is something that future generations, of course, will think is sacrosanct and 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 almost, you know, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? like inviolable and holy and, and sacred. Yeah. And, but they're people, everyone that mm-hmm. deals with this, everyone that, that formed this rule, everyone that will follow it in years to come are all people. And it's up to the people involved to interpret it and utilize it as, as they should. It's not, you know, nothing should be so absolute as like that Picard quote says at the beginning, there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute, you know, it's something Definitely that I think the frame, well, it's clear from this, the framers of the Prime Directive thought about and later generations definitely should too. And it gets to an interesting place because there's a parallel, you know, in in the United States because there are these arguments over what our Constitution means and what the amendments to the Constitution mean and how to interpret it, what was the intention, and should we go literally by what it says? And I mean, these things really, I mean, it's not just in the Star Trek universe, but these things really matter because when someone puts down a law or, you know, something's written down, it can definitely change in how people think about it over time. What I've learned in my career is how contracts are very specific, but still yet they can be interpreted in different ways. And it's funny when you have attorneys from two different parties working on a contract and then they come to an agreement that the language is clear and makes sense. But then a few years later, different attorneys look at it and say, well, it reads to me this way. And the other says, yeah, but I read it this way. And what was the intent? And it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, you can be so precise in your rules and your regulations, and there's still an element of what is the perception or what was the goal of the rule? And it can always be argued. And so it's really hard to have an absolute. And even language can change over time. I mean, the way we use language now as opposed to 100 or 200 years ago or what certain words mean can change. So how do you effectively convey what you want to say to future generations? It's it's a very difficult thing to think about. That's a very good point, especially, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution has been brought up. And I mean, that's a document that was written over two centuries ago uh, by people in a very different culture than what we're living in now. And, you know, it's interesting to think about that. It almost seems as though the Enterprise D should have a legal section that, you know, they stop at a planet and Picard has to go consult the room full of high-priced lawyers to figure out exactly (laughs) what he should be doing. Or maybe instead of a counselor, there's a lawyer on the bridge that that tries to interpret what he should be doing. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, language can be tricky because I was wearing a... a sleeveless shirt the other day because I thought I had the right to bear arms. And obviously that's not what that means, right? Dan, why are you rolling your eyes? Oh, I think they just about rolled out of my head. (laughs) I'm actually acknowledging that that was a very good joke. Nicely done. Okay, well, there you go. (laughs) 
Excellent. Well, we get another example in this book of Starfleet and the Federation dealing with a new world. And, you know, a lot of these ideas behind the Prime Directive and what we're talking about here kind of interweave and and, and seem to have parallels in the story of Captain T'Pol and her crew aboard the Endeavor, along with Hoshi Sato, encountering this new world. It's been discovered and charted by space boomers. So, you know, like Travis Mayweather's ilk, but, you know, explorers and looking to exploit resources on a new world. But they've called Starfleet in because there's this strange race of tree-like beings. This entire planet is populated only by plant life. But we get we get trees that can uh, move through their roots and tentacles across the surface of the planet, and they're not certain if they're sentient or even sapient, or you know, if they're on on some sort of level that requires protection, and and they can't just be chopped down and used up for resources. So. This was an interesting story and, and kind of just parallels the Prime Directive story just a little bit because they're they're not even certain if this planet has sentient life and whether that life should be protected or not. What did you guys think of this aspect of the story? I love this part of the story because it's an it was an exotic for, new form of life. And one thing that made the story a little bit different is, you know, there are all these debates about the Prime Directive. But you know what's going to happen eventually. They're going to adopt the Prime Directive. It's just a matter of getting there. And even the story with Maltuvis, like he has these aspirations to, you know, conquer a lot of worlds and and do something in the Federation, but it's probably not going to succeed like he wants to. But this plot with this plant life that can that can move and seems to have all of this complex behavior, I didn't really know where it was going or what it would mean for, for the future, or what they would discover. So I actually found it really exciting. And there were times where I wanted to see more of that than the other part of the story that was about the Prime Directive and about Maltuvis and Section 31 and, and all, of, all of this stuff. So I always love it when there's a new form of life that's different. And, you know, I probably haven't read quite as many novels as you guys have, but it seemed like, you know, a unique form of life in the Star Trek universe, unless there's something I haven't read about. Yeah, trees walking around remind me of Lord of the Rings. Mm. It almost it almost made me wonder if uh, if the author was trying to make H.R. Puffin stuff. You know, I don't know if you remember this show from the seventies, but they had moving trees and plants and things like that. But it is kind of like this weird world uh, feeling, which you would not have gotten on the TV show. Uh, well, I mean, possibly with Enterprise, they could have done it with some CGI or whatever. But I really like it when the novels delve into something that is very unique and off-worldly from our own. And and I remember them saying that the the land was spongy. And, and when they went to land the shuttlecraft or the ship or whatever, the sponges kind of parted away. So it's like things were alive, but a lot th- that was also a discussion there, too, of like, you know, what... What do you constitute as something being alive and intelligent? Does do they have feelings? Do do they have do they feel pain? You know all all these things that come up. That even recently I've been hearing something uh, about you know plants can actually feel, and uh, there's a debate right now going on about that that I just recently heard in the news. So you know it brought up a lot of those those thinkings too. I also felt that 
the storyline didn't quite fit in with the rest of the book, but it does fit in if you look at from the standpoint of defining the prime directive, which this book, I don't feel like that was the focus of the book, but that was, that was a piece of it. So I guess it does fit in, but for a while I kept thinking like, well, how does this fit in with the rest of the story? But I think it just was more of a statement about the prime directive. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, di- I did wonder that, like, how's this going to fit in? And in a way, I'm glad it didn't because it probably would have been pretty contrived if they would have tried to fit it in as maybe the saving thing against Maltuvis or something like that. Um, but, it, but it was really interesting. It, I think, yeah, it does make you think about the Prime Directive because if these are sentient beings, then it's a pre-warp civilization. And should they be in contact with this civilization? But they didn't know that when they got there. But it brings up those interesting questions. But also, I mean, I think when Christopher L. Bennett puts something in a book, he does something with it at a later time or comes back to it. So I feel like he'll come back to it or it'll become an important element. But I'm glad even though for the most part, it seemed kind of unrelated that he put it in there because it was really fascinating. All of this behavior that that they had um, that was really complex and even like funerary rites and things like that was just amazing. I, I was like, oh my goodness, I want to read like a whole book about this because this is something very different that I haven't read about before in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the strange new world aspect is is definitely very alluring. The other aspect of the story that kind of struck me was thinking about the Prime Directive and going forward and that sort of thing. We know that, you know, Starfleet will abide by these rules and, and you know, but what about boomers? What about capitalists heading out there what about people looking to make make their fortune and make their name and that kind of thing you know some of the the attitudes espoused by the boomers it it doesn't really seem like they're going to worry too much about setting down on some planet that has a pre-warp civilization so that like like one character says so that they can mine their sacred mountain for the minerals they need to fix their warp drive oh my goodness and yeah go ahead no, it that's what that was fascinating to me too because the boomers really aren't controlled necessarily by the federation and especially not by starfleet and yet the prime directive doesn't apply to them and they don't necessarily feel like they have to follow it and this is their livelihood and if you're preventing them from going to planets and doing whatever they need to do to conduct their business then they're they're out of a job and so this this has a big impact on other people outside of the federation mm-hmm well, but uh, but these boomers that are part of the Earth Cargo Service, wouldn't they be Federation citizens? And it, in some way, wouldn't the Prime Directive apply to them? I guess, but at the same time, I think about boomers that... I, I, I do think that they're probably citizens of the Federation, but do they need to be? Hmm. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is they could split themselves off and say, you know, well, we're not... I mean, we're no longer part of the Federation. We're our own entity of society of whatever. I mean, they can claim themselves of another planet or I don't know. But but who do they I mean, I don't know if it's been really established, but who do they report to like the Earth Cargo Service? Like who has jurisdiction over that? That's a really good question, (laughs) especially now that it's the Federation, you know, what kind of rules of of operation are in place there i think it's it's also interesting we're kind of on the cusp of what we see in the first in the original series where it is kind of the wild west of space and you know someone like rm merrick can go out there and you know sacrifice his whole crew and establish himself as part of the culture on the planet of romans (laughs) you know it might be 
five years before a starship wanders by and says, hey, what's going on here? You know, I, I wonder if maybe one of these captains could set himself up as a god on some planet and, you know, Starfleet doesn't have unlimited resources. They maybe come by a decade later and go, oh, what, what's going on here? You know? Yeah, that is that is a really good point. And, you know, for for me, since um, I'm thinking a lot about the the next generation era, like when I read a, a book in the enterprise era, I have to be like, oh, yeah, they have money. <laughs> They're talking about <laughs> earning paychecks and all of that. So it's kind of a, a different consideration than you see in, in the next generation era. And what it means is that like some of these these attitudes, like some of the way these boomers talked about it, I was I was just really just, just disgusted by how they were talking about it. Like we're just gonna you know have these people worship us as gods. We're gonna mine their sacred mountain. We're gonna take advantage of their women. I was like, oh my goodness, these these guys are terrible, um, and they're just kind of out there. And it seems like there's not much that the Federation can do about it. But I I found that that kind of thread through it about about boomers um really fascinating and it'd be interesting to see kind of how that moves through time because there was this idea um in in the enterprise show itself that you know there are faster warp drives and eventually what they're doing won't be needed and i wonder if we're gonna kind of get toward that or it's something different i don't know i just feel like that's a thread that that'll be picked up later i also feel like you know, the, these people who are in this job now, they're, you know, the future version of them in a hundred years are going to be the hairy muds, you know, <laughs> the guys out there kind of causing trouble and being a thorn in, in starship captain's sides and stuff. So it almost feels like there, there's just a little bit of setup of connective tissue there. I might, may be reading too much into it, but like there was definitely, and by design, that feeling of the old West and the, the the open frontier in the original series. And it kind of feels like once, you know, faster warp drives start kind of getting around to the general uh, population, maybe, you know, boomers and, and other civilians who aren't Starfleet, you know, we might see this kind of unregulated stuff going on. Yeah, it's, that's a really good point. Maybe this is the start of, of that kind of thing that you'll see yeah, in the original series. Hadn't thought about that. It'd be interesting in Discovery if Harry Mudd refers to himself or someone refers to him as a boomer or the mm. child of boomers or something like that. From a long line of boomers or something like that. Yeah, that, that's an interesting. interesting reference. Yeah. Ah, very cool. Well, another... Uh, aspect of this book and we talked a little bit about it is kind of the the twin um, themes I guess you could say of freedom and truth these are two ideas that come up a lot in this story so you've got you know trip and the um, the the Orion woman who's uh, uh, alias is the I only remember what's her real name sorry I, th I think it's Devna Devna, right. Yeah. Thank you. I was only remembering her alias, her fake name, but you've got Trip and Devna and kind of introducing that idea of, of freedom to her and what that would ultimately mean. And also this idea of truth and truth, I think plays a very big role in this novel. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to further their goals through deceit and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So in this story, the truth plays a really big role. And I think, you know, without getting too much into the specifics of the plot, we're not getting really into spoilers yet, I don't think. 
to me, Trip and Maltuvis were kind of two sides of the same coin in this story. So their motivations are very different. Obviously, Maltuvis is looking for world and possibly galactic domination at some point, and Trip wants to stop him. But they're both utilizing the same means in one way or another. They're they're you know using deceit and treachery to and dishonesty to get what they want. And I was wondering if you guys had kind of a comment on uh, what that means and, and maybe where Trip finds himself in this novel and what role the truth could really play. Yeah, I, I found that that whole part really, really interesting because it's true that Maltuvis has a different goal and, and it's clear in his character, you know, this is an evil guy and very different than who Trip is at his core. But Trip feels like he has to use deception. He's willing to assassinate people. He's willing to take the risk that a plan won't work and that lots of people will will die from it. Um, and he finds so he he's in this in this tough place where he feels like he's trying to to do something in service of of a greater good, but he has to keep justifying it to himself again and again and again. And he's kind of had to do that you know, over the last, what, 12 years while he's been in Section 31. It's all been about deceit and, you know, not telling people what's what's happened to him and trying to use underhanded means to to achieve goals. So, yeah, I felt that very much throughout this this book and that it was weighing very, very heavily on him. I just kept seeing the parallels between him and Harris of Section 31. I felt that Trip is using the same logic and using deceit, as you're saying, to do what what he feels needs to be done, which is right, and he would do whatever it takes to get there, whether it means people may lose their lives because of it, and it is like the needs of the many, so on and so forth. But I felt, you know, Tripp does start to realize that too, that he's acting just like Section 31, but he's going about what he's trying to accomplish versus what section 31 is going to try and accomplish, but they're going about it in the same way. And so mm. I don't think this is the trip we knew 12 years earlier. This is a different trip. And I think he's even questioning that too. Who is he? Does, is he even who he used to be and who is he now? Because I mean, just what I said, he's willing to sacrifice lives to get to the ultimate goal if it means ultimate protection of the federation and i'm you know just saying that 12 years it strikes me that you know trip has been undercover and and with section 31 longer than what we saw him in enterprise for you know a lot longer <laughs> yeah and it's it it's kind of striking to me that you know a that he's and and you know not not wanting to get too much into spoilers yet but he's he's self-aware enough to recognize this at one point but he's so deep into it and so you know he doesn't initially really see what's going on and and how damaging his actions seem to be you know and it, it's it's kind of hard to read a little bit because it, it's and I find this in a lot of books that I read in a lot of media, there's characters that, you know, are, are making decisions and you just want to yell at them. No, don't do that. And, you know, it, it feels like, you know, this, it's very simple to not do what 
Trip is doing. But at the same time, in the story, he feels like he has no choice. And, you know, I had no choice is kind of a an oft-repeated phrase that you get from people who, you know, make terrible decisions. And Trip certainly does that, I think, in this book. Yeah, I can hear Admiral Marcus in Into Darkness saying mm-hmm. that same thing. You know, there is no choice. You know, if you want to survive, we have to do it this way. You know, don't be naive. And I almost feel like that's, you know, what Tripp is doing. He's like, you know, I have to expose Section 31. I have to do certain things to get things right. And if that means sacrificing life and it means doing what's not right just to get to the ultimate end, then that's the right thing to do and don't stop me. And even to the point that he feels that he has to portray the fact that he may, you know, make people believe that he died so he can hide in the shadows. Well, that's what Section 31 does. They hide in the Mm -hmm. shadows and they operate from there. And I mean, he's becoming everything that he's against. Yeah. Well, and I think that he's thinking that in order to take down something like Section 31, he has to use their methods, not realizing that there is another choice, that you could use something very different than their methods to still take them down. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it's kind of tough to read sometimes because you're like, no, it, does it really have to be this way? Do you have to be like them in order to take them down? Because the more that he's like them, I feel like the more he's getting entrenched in being a part of that or being what he's looking to destroy. He just becomes more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the fight fire with fire. Yeah. That's what he's looking at. And the ends justify the means, which, you know, Justin, like you, or Bruce, like you mentioned, is something that Harris would probably shrug and go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, you know, they're they're operating on the same wavelength and it's it's really scary to see for sure. And, you know, really... You know, it's an oft-repeated lesson. It's almost a bit of a cliche, but it's a good lesson. You know, you shine the truth on something and, you know, it will it should wither away into the darkness and disappear, you know. Uh, all you need to do, all you need to do is, is reveal the truth and that's ultimately kind of what happens. I guess we should probably get into spoilers here now because we've been kind of dancing around the what what's going on in this book, so... Uh, those of you who are listening, uh, we're going to be getting into spoilers now. So if you haven't read the book, um, you know, what's wrong with you? Go buy it. Read it. It's good. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I'm going to give this book a good rating at the end of the show. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Trip, of course, is working to take down Section 31. Um, we as Star Trek fans who have watched all of the shows and read a bunch of other novels know how that's ultimately going to go. But in this story, he's, you know, kind of convinced that Harris is Section 31, kind of the be-all and end-all. He's at the top. It's his own private little army that he's constructed, and Trip is aiming to take them down. Now, I think it's kind of interesting. We get a bunch of dramatic irony here where we know a lot of things that the characters in the book don't know. And especially tying into David Mack's novel, Control, which came out earlier this year. You know, it strikes me, we've gotten a lot of novels that are kind of dancing around the issue of Section 31 and dealing with them. So here again, we get, you know, Crusaders trying to take down Section 31. What did you guys think of, well, we've talked a little bit about what we think of Tripp's methods. What do you think of Tripp's um the plot that he's kind of undertaking to take down the section plot that that he's trying it seems like 
He doesn't quite understand everything that's going on, so he's getting surprised at different points. And it seems like he's improvising and he's not quite... I mean, it's it seems like in, I think, something that's different than some of the other books where we've seen him working for Section 31, that, that he doesn't quite know what he's doing, that he's out of his depth or that other people are playing him and he doesn't really know what's what's going on. So it just felt like throughout that he didn't really have much of a plan except let me get to the end point of taking down section 31. And if I have to do this now, okay, this happened, I have to do this now. Okay, this happened, I have to do this now. He, he is really going along, you know, and ends justify the means because he doesn't really know what his means are. He's just improvising it as he goes along to get to that end. So I felt like he was just kind of stumbling around, not knowing what, what he was doing and just getting into it worse and, and worse. And people were, you know, suffering and dying because of it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. he's zigzagging. It's, you know, we're going in this direction. Oh, wait, maybe we need to change it this way, go that way. Yeah, I don't really feel like he had a plan that he felt confident in that was going to work. He was just kind of going through the motions and hoping to figure it out as he went along. Um, but, yeah, and, and one thing I just want to comment on about Section 31 real quick is I definitely think it belongs in the story because that's what these novels in the uh, Rise of the Federation have been playing off of, especially with Trip. But I don't want I'm I'm starting to worry that Section 31 is going to be one of the big baddies of the Star Trek universe that we go to too much, you know, like you know the Klingons and the Romulans and the Borg, and now Section 31, you know, and it's like I don't mm-hmm. want it to be overplayed too much. I think it's appropriate for this book. And should continue with the Enterprise storyline, but I'm just starting to get a little weary about that. I don't think it will continue actually in mm-hmm. the Enterprise storyline because, you know, the well, I guess what I should say is it is strongly suggested that, you know, Harris and this upper echelon of Section 31 destroy themselves and that, you know, they're they're discredited, although they're not called Section 31 in the press, and that they might go underground for a while. And there is a reference, there are some references, I think, in, in David Mack's book, Control, that every once in a while, Control feels like, you know, they've gotten overexposed or things haven't gone well, so they just kind of clear it out and it lays low for a while. So I think it's actually going to 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 lay low and maybe not even be in the Enterprise books. I mean, and also based on what happened in Control, it might not be in, you know, the 24th century books either. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'm with you, Bruce, that it's getting to the point where it's like, okay, I think this is good. But I think they are, at least my interpretation in, you know, both centuries, 22nd and 24th, that they're kind of trying to to phase it out and bring something else up. No, Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And I also feel like this is kind of the retcon to say this is why you didn't really hear about Section 31 during TOS because mm-hmm. they're dormant. They're kind of laying low for now. We'll come back later. I don't feel like they needed to do that, but because for all we know, we see Section 31 at some point in Discovery, and there's a whole season about <laughs> Section 31. <laughs> I mean, there was rumors because yeah. the ship is the numbers, the NCC-1031, and I heard, remember early on there were rumors like, ooh, is there a connection to Section 31 because 31 is in the number of you know, mm. the registry number of the ship, which, of course, mm-hmm. that's actually 1031 for Halloween because Brian yeah. Fuller's a big Halloween guy. At, le- at, <laughs> least, course, at least in yeah. the U.S. that's what it means. But Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and and I think that's kind of one of the brilliant things about this particular 
uh, aspect of Section 31 is that it can pop up when you need it because, and I mean, we're actually doing spoilers for Section 31 control here as well. I hope that's okay. But, uh, you know, URI, the the computer super, the, the super intelligence that is control in Section 31, the, it can see and know almost anything that's going on throughout the Federation. So, for example, in this book, I think everything turned out exactly the way it wanted it to. And then, you know, Harris and his group might think they decided to blow themselves up, but I think they were perfectly manipulated to do exactly what they needed to do and then taken care of. And I'm, I'm with you, Justin. It feels like Christopher Bennett is kind of closing the book on 31, at least in this era of the novels, because Trip is going off kind of underground still, but not associated with section 31 and it really does feel like they're they're kind of being put on the shelf for now but again because of the nature of the group if a good story comes along and in discovery you know maybe you never know it a good story might come along and it's able to just pop up and you know recruit new agents and do its thing kind of thing so well section 31 yeah it's definitely going to be put on the shelf for a while in the enterprise books but for trip's character it's always going to have a huge impact in the books. It's always going to be referred mm-hmm. to him as struggling through the, you know, the way he is and what he did with section 31 and, and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, the, the, the organization itself has been uh, put aside for a while. Yeah. But it's almost like it's become part of his, his DNA, how he does things. And yeah, it's definitely going to affect him. And I, I really wondered after I, after I finished the book, like what's trip going to do now? I have no idea. I mean, they're going to do something. I mean, he's a major character and you want to see him do something. But that was one thing where I was like, I have no idea where this is going to go or what he's going to do. I don't think, I mean, if Section 31's not around, I don't think he can go back into Starfleet. I mean, what's what's going to happen? I don't know. No, that's mm-hmm. interesting because, again, another spoiler to Brave the Storm, uh, we see what he's doing about 20 years later after this. So we still have a gap to fill. Um, yeah, well, and, I mean, not only that, but actually in Last Full Measure, you see what he's doing 70 years after this. So yeah, he's, he's around for a long time right. and he's doing something, but we don't know what. So it would be interesting to fill in the gaps. Yeah, Maybe he opens a catfish restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Maybe. But yeah, it, it does feel like he will kind of need a redemption of some kind because like you say in uh, to brave the storm in the epilogue, we see that he's back with to Paul um, on Vulcan, right on Vulcan. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's the gardener, I believe. Or the, yeah, I think, or the handyman or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. 21. Yeah. It's in yeah. 2186 21, where this yeah. takes in 2166. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because he's in, you know, it, it, it's a difficult job for the writers because he's got to stay underground because history records that he died on the Enterprise uh, in that wonderful episode, These Are the Voyages. That I watched um, this morning. I'm so sorry, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, 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 I think it's it's a tough job for the writers, but at the same time, it's an interesting challenge. And, 
assuming that the Rise of Federation series is going to go on and Trip is still going to be a character in them, I hope, because, you know, he's a great character and we see him go off with Devna at the end here for, you know, parts unknown. Um, what's going to happen? Like you say, is there going to be some sort of redemption? What brings him from where he is to where he ends up? And I think that's a very interesting question that I'm really looking forward to seeing some answers to. Yeah. I'll I'll bet that somewhere in there he's, uh, he's in disguise and kind of seeing what's, what's going on on earth and Vulcan. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, that, that, that is something where I'm like, Oh, I want to read the next one and see, and see where he's going to be. And I like to see what happens with him and Devna. I mean, I'm not saying anything romantic, but you know, uh, that's a character, her character, Devna, the Orion was someone who started to grow on me after a while. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to see a little more about her character in the next novel. Yeah, I love that one line where where Trip talks about seeing the um the emergence of the realization of what freedom is on her face as, you know, he's like, doesn't it feel freeing to, you know, have no plan and nobody telling you what to do and everything's wide open in front of you? And she's kind of like, Oh yeah. You know, I, I love that the description of that. that was but really it took cool. her a while to get there, which is which is interesting because he kept, you know, hey, you have your freedom, you have your freedom. And she kept saying, Well, I don't really want my freedom. I don't think I you know, I it's almost like she doesn't feel useful if she has freedom. She mm-hmm. wanted to even re- refer to him as master, even though he wasn't her master, because she's just so used to that. It takes a while to really realize, you know how suppressed her life is she does i don't think she really gets it mm-hmm. but i think the final thing at, at at the end there where she does realize that she can be free is that you know they now have this cover story that they're both dead and now you know one of the you know three sisters on orion thinks she's dead and can't well actually <laughs> they do say that she thinks she's still alive but she but devna feels like she's free to do what what she wants and it seems like for the first time she's just genuinely like relaxing and smiling like okay what can we do with that mm-hmm. so that that part will be really interesting to to find out knowing that someone actually has a suspicion that she's still around so yeah well i think she and trip will probably work to take down the orion syndicate through deception and pinning them oh god i hope not come on trip learn your lesson <laughs> <laughs> He's going to make the catfish. She's going to make the hush puppies. I like it. I want to see this spinoff. Oh, man. (laughs) That would be great. Well, one other, just one last thing I wanted to mention in this book. Uh, An important character we've actually not talked about is someone who's been there through all four years of Enterprise, a faithful companion who's been as much a part of the crew as anyone else, and that is our intrepid, you know, peeing on sacred tree beagle porthos and you know he plays a surprising role in this novel even though he's not front and center he's only referred to but he is jonathan archer's best friend in the world and i really appreciated that this novel didn't shy away from showing that relationship between um, a person and his pet and really giving it the kind of emotional weight that I think that relationship really deserves. I'm someone who growing up has always had a dog and, you know, has been my companion on adventures and and all that sort of stuff. And it really spoke to me as, you know, a pet owner that 
I, I love that there's an acknowledgement that that relationship is important and I love the role that it plays and it was heartbreaking. It was honestly heartbreaking what Archer is going through in this novel because Porthos is getting old, uh, getting a little um, sickly and by the end of the novel uh, we learn that Porthos is near death and it it has an effect and it 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 effect it affects the plot of this novel which i thought was really interesting yeah i mean initially when you are first hearing about this um it's very interesting because you you see archer thinking like there's all this prime directive stuff but porthos is the most important i need to be there for porthos i mean it's and and anyone that's like you know ever felt really close to a pet can can completely understand that so I thought it was it was a really you know touching aspect and and added something to to the story. Um, I mean, and also uh, toward the end, you know, Archer and Shran have been having this you know big disagreement over the Prime Directive, and it seems like they're growing further and further apart. But then at the end, when Shran finds out that you know Porthos is is about to die, um, he says, you know, okay. You need to be there for him. Don't worry about all of this argument. We'll work all of that out. You just need to be there for him. And I'd like to be there too. And, and you know, Archer says, you know, thanks, my friend. So they've kind of re-cemented their friendship through um, through this love Archer has for, for Porthos. And that was really nice. And that felt like something real that, that could actually happen. And it, it, added, it was just this little thing in the book, but it added a lot to me. And it felt like the perfect way to, to end things up. It did. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I, I love that scene, especially the fact that Archer is saying to Shran, you know, hey, I, this is going on with, with Porthos, my dog, but of course we have more important things to do and, and I can't just leave right now to deal with my dog. And Shran's like, no, you can, you know, I'll stand behind you. We'll put things off. It can wait. You know, you need to be with your dog. And it did show that that closeness, that bond between these two. And it was, it shows that it's very strong and it shows a lot of growth in the Shran character also. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing is this really breaks canon because, you know, in Star Trek 09, you know, Scotty did beam Archer's prize beagle Porthos and that was in 2258. So he lived, you know, a long, 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 <laughs> one over a hundred year life. To be yeah, fair, it all couldn't he be says, another beagle. <laughs> yeah, all he says is Admiral Archer's prize, prize beagle. beagle. He doesn't say Porthos. Doesn't say Porthos. But did the I novelization, I think, say Porthos? I don't know. Maybe not. I can't remember for sure. It's got to be a different dog. Porthos 16. <laughs> yeah. Right. And as much as I hate to say this, as someone who's an advocate for the novels and, you know, literary Treks co-host, non-canon. <laughs> yes, of course. I know. I'm only teasing, but but well, and real quick, I also wondered if maybe the prize beagle really was Porthos in the Star Trek movie, but he was, you know, stuffed. He wasn't alive. <laughs> He's beaming a stuffed beagle? Yeah. His prize beagle. <laughs> oh, He's had no. stuff oh. sitting there in the corner all these years. That's disturbing. God, I did I never thought about it that way, that's for sure. Wow. Okay. Well, on that note, um, why don't we go into kind of our final thoughts and ratings for Patterns of Interference? Bruce, what are your kind of final thoughts on this book? Oh my gosh. Um, I kind of have mixed feelings about this one. I, I, I feel like it's it's a really good book. 
I don't know if I like it quite as much as some of the previous ones that Christopher Bennett uh, wrote, but I mean, it's close. It's, it's really close. I don't know how to say this, but it, it did start to bother me in the beginning. I felt like there was too much sex going on. <laughs> um, I, and I don't have a problem with sex. It's just, there's, you know, a scene with Cadet Kirk and Williams and there's, you know, actually I felt the females in the book seem to be very sexual. Uh, you know, Williams, mm. Val Williams is coming on to Cadet Kirk and then we see, you know, Paris coming on to read and then we see, you know, and it was just, and then there the was Ryan a lot of slide. relationship stuff in this book. Wasn't Lots there? of it. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of like, you know, you know, ten- sexual tension, you know, of like wanting to jump bones and things like that. I mean, it was just, it really <laughs> Wait, like. bones is in this one? Bones. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and Emery Dax too. No. Uh, but <laughs> but it, it just, it was getting to a point that it was almost taking me out of it. That I was like, you know, okay, okay, now I'm going to the next chapter. Are we going to see something else? Oh yeah, plants have sex, which is mentioned <laughs> in chapter five. And it, it just started taking me out of it. It, it. it seemed to slow down later. But that it was just starting to bother me a little. So um, because of that, I I would say <laughs> I don't know how to do this now. I would give this book. Um, okay, so I'm going to give this book three truths out of five. Ooh, three and a half mm. truths out of five. Still a very good rating, absolutely. Uh, Justin, what are your thoughts on? the book and or anything Bruce has talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we've talked about some different aspects of the book that I, that I really enjoyed a a lot. The prime directive discussions were great. The part with the the plants and their culture and all that was really fascinating. Um, There were all these questions of, of, you know, freedom and, and truth and um, you know, the methods that people use to take power and there were there was just a, like a lot of good stuff that that was going on, but at at the same time, I I did have you know a bit of mixed feelings like like Bruce did. It it did seem like there was there was a lot of relationship stuff, and there yeah there was you know sex referred to or that was there that that kind of took away from it. I mean again I I feel the same way as Bruce. I don't have any problem with that, but it felt like it was taking a bit away from the story sometimes, um, and and just taking me out of it a little bit. And there were also, you know, some, some parts where, you know, it was referring to things that were in control or 24th century that took me out of it um, a bit. So, you know, I felt like there was, there was a lot of, of good stuff that, that was here. Um, But some of the things that, that there was emphasis on, um, took a, maybe a little bit away from from what could have been there. And oh, another thing that I wanted to mention is this guy Maltuvis. He's way, way, way over the top. Like there's these parts where you're getting into his thoughts, and he's like the most narcissistic person in the universe, or that you could ever imagine. And it was a little bit too much. It's like, okay, I know that he's he's evil, but but I mean, overall, like you know, if I think about the book as a whole, there's there's a lot of great stuff. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm really looking forward to the next book to see some of these things uh, move forward. And I'd give it uh, 8 out of 10 Section 31 takedowns. Very nice. Yeah, I 
I think I would have to agree with a lot of what both of you have said. There is an awful lot of sex in this book. And, you know, when it got to that part where it talks about, you know, well, if, if there's no insects, how do the plants pollinate each other? It's like, well, they eliminate that need because they can move. And at that point, I'm like, oh, oh, no, no, oh, no. And then the character says, you mean the plants have sex? And I'm like, oh, man, even the plants have sex in this book. And it's not even just via bee or butterfly. They they actually go and have sex. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and let's be clear. We keep saying this, but there's not. There's there's no sex scenes. There's no graphic sex. Yeah. It's just mentioned. It's just that. heavily implied. That's true. Yeah, it's but, it's heavily referred to. But or, but I mean, there are also some times where like you know, whenever you have Orion's in a book, I mean, I guess it's going to happen. But like they've got this really bad news about what's happened to Maltubus, who they're supporting, and they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? Oh, let's go to a male orgy. And it's like, is that really necessary to put in the book? <laughs> you know, like I I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like it was. It was just like unnecessarily so, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my one eye roll moment because I could I could hear the tone of voice. They're Ryans. Even. Of course, that's what they would do. That's what they would all do, you know? Yeah, and and you can hear the tone of voice that Christopher Bennett's even going for. It's like, oh, what should we do? Hmm, all male orgy? Okay, <laughs> you know, just like, oh, okay. You know, like, yeah. So there were those bits, like like you said, brought me out of the novel But I do really appreciate the Prime Directive debate for sure. And also the Strange New World aspect of it with this culture, like you mentioned, Justin, is just a lot of fun. And wondering what's going to happen next, where this story is going from here, what Trip is going to be doing. The one thing that I had also had a bit of a problem with was, you know, so many times Trip had to be so blind to some of the stuff that's going on and his plan was so convoluted and complicated just a few times I'm just it it was a little bit too much but I do like where that that where that story takes his character so I'm kind of more willing to forgive that because of the journey that his character takes and the realizations he comes to so I think I would have to give this one I would say four out of five stuffed porthoses oh Poor Porthos. (laughs) Uh, Ending it on that note. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about patterns of interference. You know, it's, I I really like the dynamic of having three people on and to finally be able to get you on the show. We've wanted to have you for a while and, and it's great to have you on board for this episode. Oh, it was so much fun being here. I love uh, Star Trek books and comics. It was just a pleasure to talk about, you know, a new book that's that's just come out that I hope everybody will will check out. Um, yeah, just so great being here for my first time on Literary Treks. Well, you'll ha- you'll have to be in our back pocket as one of our ringers when uh, you know we can't get the author, for example, or uh, you know just any other time that we have an empty slot that we want to fill because we really enjoyed this discussion for sure. No, thank you. I'd be happy to be here anytime. Yes. I already have him in a future slot. Excellent. He does. Yeah. (laughs) Well, until then, where can we find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find me uh, elsewhere on the network where I co-host Earl Gray, our dedicated TNG podcast with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Uh, And I'm currently tweeting out my uh, Season 3 TNG rewatch. 
Uh, you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And because I'm on Literary Treks, I just wanted to mention that I do participate in some Facebook uh, Star Trek books groups, um, the Star Trek uh, books discussion group, the Star Trek the books community group, and then and then literally Star Trek, which I had found recently. So you may oh. see me there uh, reviewing, you know, the latest book that I've read or, you know, participating there. So there's a lot of different places you can find me. Excellent. Well, you mentioned earlier that you thought that we had probably read more Star Trek books than you have. Judging by the the number of books you're posting about on those groups, I I think you might be wrong about that. <laughs> Either well, that or you're getting close to catching up and surpassing us. <laughs> I See, yeah, I, th that I don't know because, yeah, what I didn't mention before is that I read my first Star Trek book a little, just a little over three years ago when I first finished Deep Space Nine since I've you know more recently become a Star Trek fan and I wanted to read the DS9 relaunch. And since then, I've read a book about every week or 10 days. So I'm up to almost 135 with this book. How does that compare with you guys? Probably getting close-ish. I'm, I'm not sure myself, actually. What, you, you don't have a spreadsheet to keep track of these things like I do? Oh, gosh, I, no. I do <laughs> since a certain year. But okay. as far as my youth spent reading them before that, I'm not sure. Yeah, same here. <laughs> uh, but I did do a count a couple years ago, and I was about at 300. So I know I'm over okay. 300. I just don't mm. know how far over. So. So you're, you're beyond me. And a lot of the ones that I have read have been relaunch books. So I haven't read nearly as many that, you know, take place during the, the series. So I'm trying to catch up. I'm sure you'll catch us soon at the rate you're going. So awesome. Well, it is, it, it, is my, <laughs> it is my goal to read everything in, in Star Trek fiction at, at some point. And uh, I got the Voyages of the Imagination book recently to, to help with that quest. But I'll be, I think by my estimate, I probably have at least about six or seven hundred more. So it's going to still take <laughs> it's going to still take some years to get there. Plus adding a new one every month. Well, yeah, there's keeping up with that as well. <laughs> so I, in order to, to keep up, I need to read more than one other book every month also. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll see you again soon. OK, thanks so much. I'm just so glad that Justin finally got on the show. Yes, he has been badgering me, but, you know, he didn't have to badger at all. I always planned to have him on at some point anyway. Sure, you didn't know. Yeah, no, it was really great to have him on. Uh, always a fun discussion. And like I say, I really like that dynamic of, of three people. And Justin is just, he's someone who's reading a lot of Star Trek novels and brings a really interesting perspective to the show yes and i mean again i you know he's on earl gray i enjoy listening to him on there and i got to hang out with him at star trek las vegas so that was fun too awesome well it's been really fun talking about the rise of the federation with you and justin today but it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the trek fm network so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. I honestly was thrilled with the way that they set it up because, like you said, sort of like uh, Russian dolls, I guess, um, is a good way to explain it. You introduce one character in this existing show and then it leads to that character's own show, which leads to the next one's own show. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. There were a lot of comments talking about this roller coaster ride. Mm -hmm. You know, yay, I'm so excited, Trek's on. Oh, it's a prequel. 
you know, oh, I saw the first trailer and I loved it. Oh, Brian Fuller's no longer working on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's we're getting all this diversity. Oh, look at the Klingons, right? And you could just see it. Seriously, some fans have gone through some serious roller coaster rides. To the journey! And so I can see the Herojin viewing themselves as very noble, very civilized. They don't mm-hmm. let their prey suffer, but really they're doing these horrific things, just like we do here in the yeah. real world when we have to go fight wars. Yeah, absolutely. I think they go home and they write an epic poem about it, and that makes it okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the Herojin equivalent of Beowulf. Right? Warp 5. Gary Graham had a, came over and said a couple of nice things, but the funny thing was he said... I've been on this show for four years. This is my first day on the bridge. You're over there firing the phasers? What is going on? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you eat apples, that's a healthy alternative to other snacky foods. But if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, stuffed Porthos sitting in the corner, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. I don't think you can actually get that last one, though. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. So, you know, I think we'd really love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there's many ways you can do that. So the best place is to join in on the larger conversation, and that's in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. So if you have Facebook, go to it now and type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, well, guess what? You can do that too. You can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us, and you can find the network also on Twitter and Facebook. So on Twitter, go to at trek.fm, and on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash trek.fm. While special for Literary Treks, we're not just on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find us on Goodreads, and there you'll find bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section, so you can check that out and know what's coming up for future shows. And in addition, there are also great conversations happening about all of the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd also like to thank our producers, our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shemutala for their support of the Trek FM network, and specifically for being associate producers for Literary Treks. 
Now, Bruce, when you're not setting out for parts unknown under an assumed name with the wind at your back and nothing in your future, can where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. Go to StarWarsReport.com for that. And uh, you can also find a panel I did at DragonCon talking about Star Wars books, and that's on one of the supplementals that recently came out on the 602 Club. So check that out. So Dan, when you aren't trying to take down Section 31 and running around with the Orion slave girl, where can people find you? Hashtag Harris sucks. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, Facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions, Instagram at Kurtrats 47, and of course, in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.